Welcome to First Importance, featuring the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist West Memphis. We're so happy you've chosen to listen, and we pray that you'll be blessed by this message. If you have your Bibles, I would like to now invite you to join me in the Gospel of John in chapter 2. We'll be looking today in verses 23 and to the end of the chapter. And as you're turning there, I, I want you to know that in preparing this message, I've been somewhat confused as to why this is the message God has kept laying on my heart. Uh, it's not the typical type of message that I normally preach. And then much less to do it on Easter Sunday. It's kind of a, an odd thing to do. But I just feel God has this heavy on my heart. And so I... I want to share with you what God has been speaking very heavily into my heart over the last several weeks. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in the heart of man. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, I desire today for you to speak through me and to your people. Father, we need a word from you. And so I pray that you'd speak to us and that right now, in this moment, you would use this very weak preacher to preach the very power of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Over the last few months, our church has been going on a rather um, modest pace through the gospel of John. Uh, is that okay? Some folks here, modest pace, is that all right? We're not through chapter 3 yet, so that should show you we are, we are making our way slowly. We've had a few stops here and there in different locations. Uh, but the Gospel of John is written so that we may believe. And that is our theme for this year, believe. Every account in the Gospel of John is directed by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John as he wrote this account. It is caused to draw out belief from those who already believe. That is, we live in a world filled with doubt. We are flesh filled with doubts. And this book has been written, God has penned it to us to draw out our belief, to cultivate it, and to cause us to be fruitful. We saw this take place in chapter 1 where we are introduced to Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we learned just the power and the majesty of our Jesus, that it's not, his life did not begin when um, Mary had him in, in Bethlehem and laid him in that manger, but Jesus has always existed and will always exist. Our belief was drawn out and cultivated as we looked at the testimony of John the Baptist in the, towards the end of 
John chapter 1, and as we closed out chapter 1, we saw his call of the disciples. And chapter 2 is when we really got to rolling. And we saw how Jesus performed his first miracle at a small wedding in a very small town in Cana of Galilee. And we discovered how Jesus came to restore our joy and how Jesus came to bring us purity and salvation and life. And toward the end of chapter 2, we saw how he cleansed the temple and how he, he and he alone had the authority to do so. And all of this is meant as we study it to draw out our belief, to cause us to lean more upon Jesus and look more toward him. And now we come to a very small passage that is a, a transitional passage that many people kind of skip over. As a matter of fact, we are coming to a passage of Scripture, John chapter 3, which may be the most famous passage in all of Scripture. When we look at Jesus' midnight conversation with Nicodemus, and then of course we have that verse that all of us know in John chapter 3 in verse 16, but we tend to skip over this passage today. I think it's very, very important and sets the tone for John chapter 3. It is a passage that is incredibly important for all those who are listening today here and online. You see, because when we start this passage, there appears to be a great revival going on in Jerusalem. Jesus has performed miracles, and the Bible says in verse 23, many believed. The more miracles that he performed, the more people crowded in around him. And the Bible tells us here that many believed in his name. You've got to think that the disciples were elbowing one another. They were whispering to another, one another about what life was about to be like. The Messiah had come. And in their minds, a great revival was about to take place. And all of the nation of Israel would turn to Jesus and make him their king. And he would throw off the yoke of slavery that Rome had put on Israel. And he would rule the world in righteousness and in justice and in peace. As they saw people believing, they must have been on cloud nine. I'm sure being good Baptists, they probably recorded all of the numbers and were telling everyone about how much their ministry was accomplishing. But there's one thing that the disciples failed to understand that Jesus knew. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, the people believed, but Jesus did not believe their belief. I want to preach to you today from this passage under the title of this message, which is not all faith or not all belief is created equal. Not all belief is created equal. What we see in our passage today is that not all faith is efficacious. Oh, Josh just said a multi-syllable word. Not all faith is saving faith. Not all faith, not all belief is belief that brings about salvation. And I think that's incredibly important 
that the world hears that just because you say you believe or just because you have things that look like saving faith does not mean that you have faith that is saving. And if there's any question that is important today for you, it's, is my faith, is the faith that I possess, is it saving faith? Our first point today, there's a difference between slaving faith and saving faith. I think I just coined that term today. I coined a lot of terms in this pulpit. Most of them don't make sense. Perhaps this one will not. But you've heard of the term saving faith. That is faith that brings salvation, that brings transformation, that changes. But I want to suggest to you today that there is a great problem that has swept across the world and has been here since the time that Jesus was here and even before then is there is this uh, concept of slaving faith. That is faith that has all of the appearances to those who are around them to have life change and to be worth saving. But God knows, God knows that faith is not genuine. And that belief is not authentic. And that faith is not real and does not provide salvation. And what I want to do today as we look at this passage is I want to do a little biblical speculation Looking at God's word, perhaps, I wonder what belief here was so heinous that Jesus did not believe? What belief was so shallow that, that Jesus did not believe them or entrust himself to them? It appeared to all of the disciples like it was legitimate, but Jesus knew that it was not. Let's look at some elements of slaving faith. Faith that gives you a false sense of security. Faith that is not saving. Number one, I want you to see that slaving faith has intrigue without depth. I suppose that that would have been the case here. After all, I am without doubt that Jesus is the most interesting personality in all of human history. No other man has spawned such curiosity and animosity. When you look at the life of Jesus, it is easy to tell that his life is filled with intrigue. And all those around him were interested on one level or another in what he was doing. All kinds of religions today are based on his teachings or rather a perversion of his teachings. Oh, Jesus is rather interesting, but do not mistake intrigue with belief. When I look at the New Testament and I see that the religious authorities, they were very interested in Jesus. Every time Jesus turned around, one of them was there, a lawyer to ask him a question and entrap him. Spies around every corner to to look at what Jesus is doing and see if they can find any hypocrisy or wrongdoing. Everywhere he went, you could say that the religious elite were infatuated with Jesus. Crowds pressed upon him on many occasions. But friends, don't mistake intrigue for belief. Many people in here today and many people watching online have mistaken intrigue for belief. You're vaguely interested in the teachings of Jesus, vaguely interested in his life and the stories that surround him. Many people are intrigued with Jesus, but there is no depth. Intrigue without depth is not saving faith. It's slaving faith 
It gives you the idea that just because you're interested in somebody means that you have a relationship with somebody or that there is depth with somebody. No, friends, I wonder if in this crowd of people in Jerusalem, if there are people or if there are people in this room, in this crowd who are here today to celebrate Easter with me who are just merely intrigued with Jesus. But there's no depth. There's no walk. There's no life. Well, that's slaving faith. Faith that has interest but no intimacy. Brothers and sisters, friends, I want you to hear me. Just because you're interested in Jesus doesn't mean that you're saved by him. Well, for a long time here in America, being interested in Jesus was enough to fill the pews. And being interested in Jesus made it appear, I'm sure, like great revivals were occurring all the time. But interest in Jesus or interest in what you can get out of Jesus for your own personal benefit is not belief. It's not the type of belief that causes Jesus to entrust himself to you. No, listen, my friends, when I look at slaving faith, I see intrigue without depth. What about you? Is there depth to your belief, to your faith? Number two, in slaving faith, there's entertainment without awe. Entertainment and awe is absent. The Hallmark passage that I think of when I, when I think of this type of belief, I go to John chapter 6 in verses 22 through verse 60. And in this account, just right before this account, as a matter of fact, Jesus was surrounded by a crowd of 5,000. And he had compassion on the crowd and he wanted to feed them. So he looks to his disciples and he says, hey, how are we going to feed these guys? And they're looking to one another like, we don't have the money to go in and buy like a just a quarter of what we need to feed them. But they bring to him a little boy who has five loaves of bread and two fish for his lunch. And Jesus brings it. He prays over it. He breaks it. He passes it out. And all of the 5,000 eat. All of them. They sit down together. They all eat this meal. It, was, it is just completely to imp impossible to understand how Jesus did so much with so little. And then Jesus tells his disciples, all right, get 12 baskets and go pick up the leftovers. And they fill up 12 baskets filled with leftovers. And so the crowd becomes so enamored with Jesus. They've been so entertained that they, the Bible says in verse 15, that they want to take him by force and make him their king. But it wasn't his time yet. And so Jesus sent them away. He went to a hill to pray and told his disciples to cross the sea. And that very night, Jesus met them on the water walking across the very next day, all of the crowd sees that he's no longer there. So they go around to his home in Capernaum, and there they find him. There they find Jesus. And Jesus merely just shares the truth with them. He says, you're not really coming to seek me, but you had your fill of bread yesterday. And then they have the audacity to demand a sign. Jesus, prove that you are who you say you are. <laughs> what? They said, Moses, Moses gave us manna. Bread fell from the sky. Now you show us a sign. Their stomachs haven't had the chance to grumble since the time he fed them bread and fish. 
And yet they have the audacity to demand another sign. They'd make very good 21st century Christians, by the way. God, do one more thing so I can believe in you. If you just do this one more thing, I'll believe in you. If you can just uh, do this in my life, provide this for me, you'll be worthy of my faith. Jesus looks at these people and he goes, listen, I'm the bread of life. If you want to live, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the Bible says this was a very hard saying, and they left. They all left. Why? Because they were more into Jesus for the entertainment. And they weren't in it for the awe. They weren't in it for the worship. They were just there to see what thing he can do next. And you know what? Christianity, Christianity today is filled with the exact same thing. How can I be entertained? Every pastor struggles with this around Easter time, right? It's like, what can we do to bring people in? I mean, if I play the right music for you, will you love Jesus? Right? If I, if I, uh, if I preach the right type of message, then, then they'll love Jesus. That's right. Or if I, if I offer to, to uh, shave my head, Lord, I'll, they'll love Jesus then. Right? If I just do this or do that, somehow I can get you to love Jesus. But you know what, guys? That's not saving faith. That's just in it for the entertainment. That's slaving faith. If you're just in this to be entertained so you can have one. Hey, listen, there's Netflix for that, right? You can go, go be entertained somewhere else. This is not a house of entertainment. This is not a house of preference. This is a house of worship. That's what this place is. And that's not even saving faith. When you're in it for what you can get, when you're in it just to have your back scratched, that's not saving faith. That's slaving faith. And if there's one thing I could just tell you over and over again is church, don't be a group of people who's just in it for, for like being entertained by what he does. That's not saving faith. And if, you, if, you're like, if you're here today, you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're just in it for like what you can, like, like can you make me feel good about myself today because I've had a bad week and I've lost my temper? Josh, can you just, that's not what we're here for. That's slaving faith. It's got all the appearances of saving faith, but it has no awe. It has no worship. His disciples, by the way, in John chapter 6, stayed around and Jesus says, Are you, you're not going to leave too? Everyone else has left. And they say, Who, where else will we go? You have the words of life. Not in it for the show. They're in it for the Savior. Slaving faith has inspiration over imitation. Inspiration over imitation. I suspect that the crowd at the Passover felt this. They were inspired by the works and the words of Jesus. After all, most of those people that Passover probably would have been poor. Uh, they would have been broke. And they would have watched Jesus uh, uh, take a whip of cords and, and drive out all the people from the temple who had been taking advantage of them all these years. All these years, these rich people have been taking advantage of them have been making them poorer. They've been getting richer. And, and I imagine that when they saw Jesus drive out these people who were all high and mighty, who were all high on themselves, they must have been like, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm very interested. I'm very inspired by what this guy is doing. But don't let inspiration be mistaken in your life for true, genuine, authentic belief and faith. Just because Jesus' life is inspirational, many people 
use the words of Jesus as inspiration today less frequently than they used to. I'll say that. They think that the things that he said, the things that he did, they'll say that those are inspirational, but they lack imitation. Friends, I want you to know something. When Jesus changes your life, when he changed my life, when he came into my heart and he changed me there on that waterbed uh, at my parents' house in Caraway, Arkansas during the middle of a storm, let me tell you what happened. I didn't become perfect after that, but God began to work in my life, and there was evidence of the faith that he had begun in my heart. The God, uh, in, in the book of James chapter 2 and verses 14 and verse 26, James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You see, friends, we're not saved by works, but our works show our faith. Many people are interested in Jesus. They're inspired by Jesus as long as it affects somebody else. Oh, the whole, the whole like if your enemy uh, slaps you, you turn the other cheek, that's a great saying until your neighbor slaps you <laughs> and then you're about to move some furniture, okay? That's good when it's not you. I can, I can say, oh, Jesus, that's inspiring, but that obviously didn't work for you, so I'm not going to apply it to my life. Friends, that's slaving faith. You may fool everybody in here. You're going to fool me. I'm easy to be fooled. I could look at you and say, oh, they really are inspired by Jesus' words. Perhaps they read it. They send me a text every day with, his, with a scripture verse on it. You're inspired by it, by the, but there's no work. That's slaving faith. It has all the appearances to mankind to be saving, but there's no salvation there. Slaving faith. Next, I want you to see slaving faith has work without worship. Work without worship. Yes, faith produces works. Yes, whenever Jesus enters my life, I'm changed. I will work. There will be good works that come from me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. But works can be deceiving. Many have the appearance of serving the Lord, but lack the true motivation for obedience. You're obedient because perhaps it's what your parents taught you. And I'll have the good works. Or perhaps you've grown up in a community of people who've taught you good morals. And so you have the appearance of obedience. You have uh, an outward ob obedience, but you lack the very motivation that comes with genuine faith, and that is worship. My obedience is an act of worship. Lord, I want to please you with everything that I say and do. We were singing that song a while ago. I cast my mind to Calvary, first and second service. It was just so hard for me to sing. I was just crying because I was like, God, you know what kind of terrible person Josh Hall is. And you know the struggles that go on in my life. You know, you know how, how hard my heart is uh, on many occasions. Lord, you know, you know these struggles that I have. But Lord, with all those things, I just want to serve you. I want to love you. I want my life to reflect that thank you for the cross. Why works without worship is nothing. 
It's nothing. Worship is the very driving force for, for works that come from authentic faith. I went uh, this past week with our, uh, the pastor of the Hispanic uh, church right across the street, uh, Brother Hector Flores. We went out to eat this week for lunch, and we were talking about the Who's Your One campaign. I want them to be involved because at the end of the month, we want to baptize. Listen, I'm giving you a number. We want to baptize 20 people at the end of this month. I'm being serious. This is not like a quota that I'm asking you. This is like, I'm not a, like your main car salesman and I'm asking you go out and, and you know, pawn these products that aren't good. Uh, what I'm asking you to do is be faithful to share the gospel and I want to see people saved and discipled here. Okay, so we're talking about it. We went out to eat, we're talking about it. Our waitress comes up and talks to us and waitress sits down and we begin to share the gospel with this waitress, Okay. And we asked her what she had thought about Jesus. Do you, do you love Jesus? She goes, well, yeah, but I'm not crazy about him like you guys are. <laughs> I'll t I've been called crazy under a lot of different circumstances. I'll take that. I, I just looked to this young lady and I said, ma'am, that's because you don't know what he's done for you. Because if you understood what Jesus has done for you, you may act a little crazy. Okay. Yeah, because you're going to be madly in love with him. The, your work, what you do, is going to be done out of a standpoint of obedience. Many people think that just because they're moral people, that they have belief, that they have saving faith. But the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 7, in verses 21 through 23, that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of his Father who is in heaven. And Jesus says in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 7, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not do mighty works in your name? And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hey, listen, this list of people have done more than any of us have done. Cast out demons, all these miracles. Wow. And yet Jesus says, Jesus says, I, I don't know you. Hey, your belief, I don't believe slaving faith. Many who call him Lord don't actually serve him. Next, I want you to see a slaving faith is reverence without relationship. Reverence without relationship. Slaving faith substitutes false reverence over relationship. Just because someone is faithful to church or faithful in reverence does not mean that they have a relationship with him. I suppose that that was a part of the problem in Jerusalem that day, and I suppose that it's a huge problem in today's world. If I were to take you back to the Sunday before his crucifixion, and we were to go into the gates of Jerusalem, you would see Jesus entering, riding on a donkey, and you would see on the street those men and women gathered around with palm branches laid on the ground, throwing out garments on the ground so that the donkey's feet would not touch even the dirt because they esteemed Jesus or supposedly respected Jesus. I'm sure the disciples would have again been in awe. But Jesus knew that the same voices that would cry out, Hosanna in the highest, would just days later be screaming out, crucify him. He didn't come to give us what we want. He didn't come to throw off the reins of Rome. He did not come so that we could still sit on the throne of our hearts. 
crucify him and make sure that when it's over, the deed is done. Make sure that his tomb is guarded. Make sure there's not a bit of breath left in him. And make sure that you drain out every drop of blood from his body. They had all the appearance of reverence, but there was no relationship there. And so too today, many people have all the appearance of reverence, but there is no relationship there. Which brings me to my second and final and very quick point, which is this. I said, number one, there's a difference between saving faith and slaving faith. And number two, I want you to know this. He knows the difference. God knows. You can fool everyone, everybody in your life. Your family, your spouse, your children, your friends, your co-workers, those who come to church. You can fool everyone, but you can't fool him. He knows you. Your days were written in his book before you were ever born. He knows every hair on your head, every thought in your brain. He knows everything that you've said or looked at this week. He knows everything about you, everything that you've hidden. He knows those things that people on this earth won't uncover. He still knows. And today, as we celebrate Easter, we celebrate the borrowed and empty tomb. We celebrate the tomb that we say, the empty tomb that is filled with hope and life and joy. And it is. But when we look at the empty tomb, it not only speaks hope and life and joy, but it speaks something altogether different from many who are listening because as we celebrate Easter we celebrate that in our in our sinfulness in our rebellion against God God so loved us that he sent his only son Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary and to live a perfect life and to never sin and to perform miracles and to do good. He made the lame to walk. He made the blind to see. He took the leprosy away from people. He cast out demons. He walked on the sea. He gave, uh, 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 he changed a small little lunch into a banquet for a lot of people. And what was our reward for his journey here to accomplish our salvation? But to pick him up in the middle of the night and to give him an unjust trial. And what was our reward to him for all of his good? But to beat him and to spit upon him and to place a crown of thorns on his head. What was our reward for the Jesus who came to save us? Like the people who ran the vineyard in that parable that Jesus once said, we said to ourselves, come, let us kill his son and the inheritance will be ours. We took Jesus and we flogged him and then we put a cross on his back and he made him carry it up the mountain called Mount Calvary. And there at Mount Calvary, we nailed the nails into his hands and to his feet and ridiculed him all the way. And we placed him after he died in a buried tomb. One day, two days, three days passed. Stone rolled away. Jesus walked out, and we celebrate hope and life and joy. But to many people, this is not a story of hope, life, and joy. Because just as that grave is empty, and there lies nothing in it but the body bag, bag they tried to keep him in, so your life lays bare before him. You can't fool him. He knows everything. The question is not, do you believe him? 
The question is, does he believe you? Not, do you know him? Oh, I'm so afraid that the church is filled with people who just made like this surface commitment and they're wondering why their lives haven't changed and they're wondering why there's no joy in church and in Jesus. And it's because they've been sold this lie of slaving faith. And you fool everybody, maybe even yourself. But you can't fool him. He knows the heart. He doesn't need anyone to testify about us. Let me give you one last illustration and I'll close. This year has been a difficult year for Christians as we look to the news. And perhaps you're familiar with the apologist, Robbie Zachariah. Oh, for many years, he was the great apologist. For decades, he was invited to every big Christian conference. For decades, he was uh, uh, representing the faith against every uh, evil philosophy that came against Christianity. He was filled with a charm. He was charismatic. And the way he spoke was just smooth. Everyone loved to hear Robbie Zachariah. It's about a year ago, he passed away, and we watched online his memorial service as prominent figures in the United States and even around the world testified to how great Robbie was. But you know what we've found out since then? As the RZIM ministries have begun to investigate improprieties in his life, you know what we discovered about Robbie? And it, it breaks my heart. It's like I don't even know how to compute this. We've discovered that he was an extremely adulterous man. A man who lied to cover up. A man who intimidated. A man who solicited inappropriate things. A man whose faith was not consistent with the appearance. Now all of us, like we're watching this and we're going, you did what? Like you, you read like verifiable things and you're going, What? What kind of, if there was anyone that was saved, surely it would have been him. But friends, God knows. Thank you for joining us for this episode of First Importance. We invite you to check out our other sermons on this podcast and to join us in person on Sundays at 8.30 or 10.45 a.m., as well as streaming live on Sunday mornings at 10.45. We hope to see you soon at First Baptist West Memphis, where we love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.